I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 68. Uh, let's see. Okay. Wanted to cover a couple of things before we get into uh, the episode proper. First off, wanted to reiterate that you can purchase, for the title, Josh's uh, uh, Ultimate Frisbee Opus. You can uh, purchase that at morethanonelesson.com. It is only $10 for uh, hours of hilarity. I'm incorporating uh, commentary on that. Which I assume is hilarious. I haven't listened to it. It's totally hilarious. Okay. It's me and uh, three of the actors from the film. Okay. Hello, everyone, by the way. Sorry. I, I haven't mean, gotten to... Yeah, I should I know, but you start before, talking about before my Before movie, I jumped so in. I yeah. to jump in. So my co-host, Josh, Lo- Josh Long, is here. Josh, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Hello, everybody. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we don't need to hear much more from him, but... No, not at all. I'm going to sleep. Have a, have a fun time, everyone. Talk about the movie. Either you me. or the listener. Um, it's going to be like create your own story where Tyler's just going to say something and then you answer back to him whatever you want. And he's going to say something that's so vague back to you that it always sounds like he's apply- replying. Like, interesting. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, see, that's me uh, replying to something see somebody that. said. Uh, eh, not so much. To a certain extent. That's a phrase I like to use. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, by the way, here's a little here's a little thing, a little uh, peek behind the curtain. If you ever say something and then I respond with, yeah, to a certain extent, what I'm saying is no. <laughs> okay? That's me being diplomatic. Mm. Uh, okay. Now, the other thing, this will be going up on Tuesday, which is what day the 18th. is that? That's the 18th. So, this will be going up on uh, Tuesday the 18th, a week later. One week. One week's One whole time. week. What, what, what is a week from that? September 25th. Okay. And what is on that day? It's a Tuesday as well, I think. I'm playing with you all. What happens is this is when we will release the first episode of The Unemployed Mind. And what is that, Josh? It's my new web series, for those who don't already know. Uh, Web series, The Unemployed Mind, about two bachelors trying to make it without uh, going crazy. And without having any jobs. There you go. And, um, yeah, it's comedy. It's hilarious. It's about, uh, you know, quick, short episodes. They, they just breeze by. You, you'll feel like no time has passed at all. You'll Absolutely. be enjoying yourself so much. You won't remember them at all. You'll be like, what just happened? No. It's like a drug. Yeah. One of those ones that's good like at first, a really but bland, on. Just a really bland, unmemorable drug. No, no. So, I'm joking, of course. It's the kind uh, of drug that you would wipe out. Yeah, I'd say yeah. You'd there'd be a big gone. there'd be a big movement against it. Oh yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I saw I saw one episode of it and I enjoyed it quite a bit. So uh, so yeah, uh, the first episode will be up on the twenty fifth. At the moment, the website is up and running, so you can go to theunemployedmind.com, dot com and you can see a, a teaser trailer as well as a lot of short. Uh, explain what what the other videos are. There's a few other videos on there that were. Uh 
instigated by Kickstarter donors, people who, uh, because they don- donated a certain amount of money, maybe some of you listeners are those people. Maybe. Um, because they donated a certain amount of money, they were a, uh, they suggested things for us to shoot for them. So little uh, comedic videos, I won't give away too much, but mm-hmm. uh, little things based on their ideas. And those are now there for everyone to view, as long as, or as well as credit for the, uh, the supporters who who uh, suggested them to us. Absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah. And then uh, I will be, at the moment, the teaser trailer is posted on morethanonelesson.com. When the first episode goes up, uh, I will give it its own uh, blog post so you can find it at morethanonelesson.com because uh, there's no reason that I shouldn't get a hit out of it as well as Josh. So Exactly. Um, that's what it's all about is uh, just trying to trying to exploit other people in the guise of helping them, by right. the way. It's all about your clout score. Absolutely. I stopped following that because... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw no rhyme or reason to it. <laughs> so, um, okay. So I think that covers, I think that covers everything. Uh, so we can get into the episode, but I did want to specify first, uh, last episode, I said that we would be discussing, uh, Kenneth Lonergan's film, Margaret, this episode. Uh, we opted not to do that because I had not seen the film since I first saw it. Uh, I have since purchased it on Blu-ray. Unfortunately, my TV is broken, and I am, um, I am unable to watch it uh, or rewatch it. So we're going to put that off for, for a while because it's not a film that I... Uh, it's a film that I want to have kind of fresh in my mind uh, when I discuss it. So, uh, so instead, we're going to be doing something else. We're actually going to be doing what we started to talk about last week, in which we will be discussing older films that are, I think, a little too significant to merely have them be companion films, uh, and they're uh, rather overtly about uh, faith and, and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, so we're going to kick that off with a discussion of Fred Zinneman's A Man for All Seasons. All right, now Fred Zinneman directed From Here to Eternity, High Noon, The Sundowners, Julia, and uh, The Day of the Jackal, as well as uh, countless others. Um, and A Man for All Seasons was based on a play by Robert Bolt. He adapted it into into a screenplay. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. Okay. I'm reluctant to even... <laughs> I was reluctant to do this as an episode, even though I love the film and I think it has a lot of uh, practical uh, application to our lives. But people haven't seen it. Uh most people our age haven't seen it. Everything about it looks like kind of a stodgy, old-timey, best-picture kind of thing. Yeah, because it's a period piece, and it's from now, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, that kind of turns people off. Yeah, and that's that's unfortunate. I, I'm trying to think when I first saw it. I think I first saw it um, when I was like 16 or 17. I think I saw it because... Uh, I think I saw it because Robert Shaw is in it uh, and Orson Welles. And I, I think that was enough to, to bring me into it. And I thought, well, yeah. it's a best picture, so it'll get that out of the way as well. I think I saw it in high school, particularly because my, my parents liked it. I know it's one of my dad's favorites. He really likes uh, the character of Sir Thomas More in mm-hmm. this film and sort of his, his attitude and his stance and everything. So I believe that's why I first saw it. But I, I've seen it more times than than probably most people. <laughs> <laughs> oh no question, but yeah. uh, but it, it is a it is one that every time I return to it, it's it's very rewarding. Yeah, and it's yeah I've seen it probably I think three times. 
Uh, I find it to be immensely rewatchable. And admittedly, it di- when you when you first start watching it, it does seem just like a very straightforward costume drama mm-hmm. that is that could be like mildly interesting. But if you really take the time and invest in the characters and invest in what's happening, you discover that it, I think the screenplay is incredibly sharp, mm-hmm. and I think it's very witty. Yeah, uh, definitely. I, I would compare it. I, I would compare it to like the Lion in Winter. Yeah, which is also based on a play, uh, but and it has all the trappings of like a stodgy costume drama, but it's so much more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it uses it really utilizes kind of the the old uh, that old type of that old way of speaking. It really utilizes that to have a lot of wit and uh, and like I said, it's. It's sharp. I'm not sure if I'd go so far as say it's it's like biting, but there are some really nice wry moments in the film. Uh, but we'll get to that in a moment. So, real quick, and I, you know what, I forgot to do what I uh, what I said I was going to try and do from now on, which is uh, write out a summary so that we can uh, kind of move past it. But uh, I'll throw it to my friend Josh here. Uh, how what is uh, what is a man for all seasons about, Josh? Dazzle us. I can give you a pretty quick uh, description of it. I'll try and run through the the basics, and then we can always elaborate on it later if we need to. But um, the basic story is is or surrounds the real life historical character of Sir Thomas More, um, who timeline. I guess that would have been the fifteen hundreds. I just go by kings. <laughs> Henry the Eighth time. Well, it was Henry the Eighth, and he w- he would have been like, I think he's mid fifteen hundred. No, 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 later. I don't know. Yeah, I don't Late know. Late 1500s, I guess. Um, and uh, Thomas More was a... Uh, was he an archbishop? That's what I'm forgetting. He wasn't an archbishop. Lord he Chancellor. Was Lord Chancellor. That's I know. It doesn't sound wonderful. Yeah, I know. Um, but anyway, he was a uh, he was a friend of Henry VIII and kind of a, an advisor. And, and uh, what uh, the, the main event that the the film is surrounding is um when henry the eighth decided that he wants to uh divorce one of his wives mm-hmm. which one do you remember <laughs> Catherine. i think Catherine's the one yeah this is all these like historical details of the things i don't remember but uh he wants to divorce his wife because she hasn't given him a son right but because divorce is illegal uh by the or is frowned on and decided to you know seen as a sin by the Catholic Church, right. he wants to have that changed. Mm-hmm. And so he's seeking uh, ter- Sir Thomas More's uh, approval in that, which right. More flatly denies. And um, he doesn't... And the weird thing is, he doesn't actually need his approval. No, he really doesn't. But it's one of those things, and it's there's a really wonderful scene where it's just... For, for the king to go against the Pope and the Church... He needs public opinion on his side. Right. And Sir Thomas More, uh, there's a line, he's honest, but more importantly, he's known to be honest. Yeah. So if you get this guy on your side, that might change public opinion. And suddenly it's like, oh, well, if this guy is okay with it, then maybe it's all right. Right. And knowing who Henry VIII was, that he was such a bombastic character and sort of could get his way, um, he sort of tries to play all those same tricks with Moore, but it doesn't doesn't really work. Right. And not that Moore even makes a snap decision. Like, he has to take some time to think about it and decide, like, well, what's going to happen if I say no to the king? Yeah. And, um, which is a very difficult question. 
Um, but ultimately, he has to say he has to say no due to his uh, his his moral stance. Yeah, and the film ultimately becomes a tragedy because uh, more in openly opposing Sir Henry VIII's Sir Henry. VIII, I'm saying too many of these same things at the same time and messing my words up. King Henry VIII. There you go. Uh, since he opposes the king's divorce publicly, he is. Sorry, start to cut me and off it's, there. Well, it's not even it's not even that he opposes it. He d- j- he simply remains silent. Mm. He does not su- he doesn't support it, in, but he doesn't pub- oppose it in the public sphere. At least. Yeah, yeah. He, and so, and and that, but that, but the fact that he remains silent because, as I said, people know who he is. And if this guy is not being openly supportive, mm-hmm. even though he's not a f- on record, right publicly as being against it everyone kind of knows where he stands so he ends up being uh put in prison and ultimately executed yes and uh one of the highlights of the film is a long sequence where he is on trial basically Mm -hmm. for for his uh for his opinion or for his uh position on the issue um and where he kind of makes his his final stand. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, the film I mentioned uh, earlier that it won Best Picture. The film won uh, Best Picture, Director, Actor, Screenplay, Costume, and uh, Cinematography. It was uh, nominated in 1966. Thank you. Uh, it was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress, which it did not win. But. Uh, yeah, so I guess we can uh, start getting into the film uh, proper. It's a very, it's to me, it's a very interesting film because it's a little. I wouldn't go as far as say it's subversive, but it is not what you're used to when you see a film like this. You know, when mm-hmm. you watch, I mentioned Lion in Winter already, but when you watch a movie like uh, Beckett, which is a movie I love. Have you ever seen Beckett? No. Oh boy, it's good stuff. Um, and that's also about a guy who opposes a king and uh, winds up, uh, eh, things don't go well. So, um, and that's about Thomas Beckett, all these Thomases. <laughs> and so... Uh, Is that Peter O'Toole? Peter that? O'Toole and uh, Richard Burton, yes. Mm-hmm. Peter O'Toole playing Henry II for... No, I believe he... I think he played Henry II for the first time in Beckett and for the second time in The Lion in Winter. Hmm. So, now of course I'm very you know familiar with the role of king henry the well, why would that be well i'll tell you josh years ago i don't totally remember it might have been 12 i uh i was in a play in high school it's called the lion in winter i played uh, king henry the second now wait is this the same lion in winter we've just been speaking about it is mm. it is uh and uh you know word on the street is that my performance was pretty well regarded Really? Yes. Well, where? Where? Like, what part of the country would that have been? Uh, like a like Missouri, like the whole state, the state of Missouri. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. In fact, they they liked it so much they gave it a name. Best actor was it? Best. Best. Yeah. Wow. Of all the actors in Missouri in that year in high school that chose to participate in this competition, I was mm. the best one. Wow. So it's pretty good. It's not bad. And then you went to nationals after that, right? No. Uh, oh. we, you know what? We were fine. Quit while you're ahead, I see. <laughs> yeah. 
of course, I'm. Uh, while all that is true, I'm being facetious. I do not. Uh, while I'm proud, while I was proud of it at the time, it's that, that's kind of the that's my version of like we're still wearing my letter jacket. <laughs> so, um, but uh, back to business. Um, and you mentioned Peter O'Toole and Richard Burton. They, they had a very. I I love both of them as actors. I think they are both very interesting and memorable, and they make uh, good choices. And there, but there is a an inherent watchability, and there's kind of a there's a charisma to them that Paul Schofield, who plays Thomas Moore, who played him on stage when it was play, mm-hmm. um, and who won Best Actor, he is not a man without charisma, but he delivers lines in kind of an odd way. He could seem a little, for lack of a better term, snooty or snobbish. He seems very. Uh, or elitist is yeah. another is another name. Uh, there's a reason why in Quiz Show, um, his they get Paul Schofield to play this very witty and very wry uh, poet who is also uh, pretty pretty snobbish in his in his uh, opinions and in his tastes, but uh, still a man of integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just has an odd. He just has a very odd way of speaking. Hmm. Um, and that's not to say it's bad, but to choose him now, of course, he was he played the character on stage, but to choose him as your lead, I think, is kind of a kind of a bold move because he's not somebody who immediately gets our sympathy just by virtue of how he plays the how he delivers a line. Yeah, it's just it's not just his personality that gets him by. On. Yeah, I mean, if you were to like when you see the way he. Uh, talks to other people he's a, a character that is smart and he knows he's smart and he's talking to other smart people but he it's like his integrity is like he knows that he's a man of integrity he knows that he's a man who is honest and he takes a certain degree of not the negative kind of pride but he knows like he knows that he's kind of unshakable and so that leads to one one could see a certain smugness when he's dealing with some of the more corrupt officials mm-hmm. um, and maybe even an air of superiority. Um, like when I, when I watch the film, I do not think that he's a, a perfect man. I think he is noble. I think he's courageous and I think he's a man, man of integrity, but I think he also is very aware of how he comes across. And I think he maybe looks down on some of the people that he comes in contact with. Yeah. What do you think of that? I think that's definitely true. I mean, there's, there's, there's parts in the film where he specifically kind of looks down on mm-hmm. characters and things, specifically the character of Rich. Yeah. Um, who later on, <laughs> more is vindicated a little bit for looking down on him because he turns out to be kind of a, kind of a scumbag. Yeah. But then An at opp- the same time, opportunistic traitor. Right. But <laughs> yeah, but one could also make the argument that he might not have turned out that way had more been more, uh, uh, accepting to him, or or yeah, yeah if he'd I been guess. if he'd been a bit more gracious, yeah, I think yes, um, yeah, it's and there's a a scene fairly early where Moore is talking to Cardinal Wolsey, played by Orson Welles, in what I think is a wonderful performance of just I'll I'll get to that in a minute, but uh, but Wolsey is as corrupt as you get, yeah. and a guy who I'm fairly certain he just. He believes in God. I mean, he's a represent, uh, representative of the church, and I think he believes in God in maybe only the most abstract way. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, a scene where uh, he's talking about 
he's talking about it's important that the king has an heir so he's all for the king uh you know ditching his wife and going off with this other woman and and then thomas More's like but uh that's not his wife and he's like well his, his wife is barren as a brick He's like, do you want me to pray for a miracle? And it's just like, <laughs> just the idea that a miracle is impossible. He just go, he just kind of assumes that, uh, <laughs> even though he's a man of faith. Uh, and then, of course, more quite wittily comes back with, there are precedents. <laughs> uh, and and just, it's that idea of, it's funny, but it's also just like, man, like he, he does not really pass up the opportunity to kind of take a little jab mm-hmm. at the people that he thinks are corrupt. And perhaps because of their corruption perhaps uh, they deserve it yeah but uh but yeah i think i think the character can be a little for lack of a better term uh maybe a little petty at times yeah although it is fun to watch sometimes to oh, see yeah. him say sarcastic things to people on the highest levels of of the church and uh, and english ruling yeah. class whatever yeah and so and paul Schofield just he manages to just hit every note and so like so his jabs are pretty sympathetic and then his, but like when he takes a stand, it can also seem like I, I can't totally get on board with this guy. Is he just being stubborn? Mm-hmm. Is he just doing this for his own sense of superiority? Like, yeah. I don't totally know. Um, he, again, his actions are, are laudable and, uh, and I think he's a, a very courageous uh, character, but it's the, the film really is built around his that character and whatever performance they were going to have. And the fact that they chose that one is something that I think makes the film a cut above other movies like it. Um, so, okay. So I already mentioned, uh, and, and it is a film that is built around pretty much all the performances. Uh, I mean, movies that are based on plays tend to be like that. Um, and so we'll probably kind of tick off some of the performances, uh, that we like, um, I mentioned Orson Welles, so I'll go with him. Uh, I'll say this. Orson Welles hated that he was getting fat. Uh, he really <laughs> did not like that. He really felt ashamed of it. Um, but uh, but he used it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, he got, as he got older and as he got bigger, he tended to play corrupt characters. Uh, you look at Touch of Evil. Yeah. Um, and he patted him. He wasn't as big as, as Hank Quinlan in Touch of Evil, but he patted himself out. But he was still a little a little bigger. And I think he knew that, like, this guy would be a little bigger. Just the idea of, like, a, a guy who's let himself go physically and morally. Mm-hmm. And I think you get a lot of that with Wolsey. Oh, definitely. I think it seems like Wells maybe was that big by that point. I think he probably was, yeah. He's, uh, or as big as Hank Quinlan, I mean. Um because he, he's he, he's not looking great physically in this right. film, but that's I think it's part of maybe his choice and the filmmaker's choice that they don't make him look like he's a pleasant character. He looks kind of gross. Yeah, he. I mean, he just he just looks uh, he looks corrupt. Yeah. I know that sounds weird, but he just looks like a like somebody who's just ugly on the inside and the outside. Yeah, and he's like red faced and shiny, yeah. and like he he looks. And bloated and overfed and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah it's he's it, it's weird the 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 way that Wells plays him and the and the interaction that he has with Moore. Uh, it made me feel uncomfortable, just like to be in the same room with this guy who has mm-hmm. so much power, but is just so just so uninterested in doing 
anything even close to the right thing. Like yeah. if he does the right thing, it's incidental. Like yeah. it's because it happens to uh, serve benefit himself. Him. Yeah, yeah, he's totally self-serving. Yeah, he's a really good just symbol of what of like the corruption of the church at the time. Yeah. Um. So uh, moving on. Um. You know, there, there are so many interesting characters. Uh, I will mention Robert Shaw as Henry VIII. Um, now, if you're like me, when you think Robert Shaw, you think of Quint from Jaws. And then maybe to a lesser extent, you think of, uh, what's his name? Doyle Lonigan, I believe, from uh, The Sting. Sting. Uh, but, this is, but this is the film that he was, uh, the only film he was ever nominated for. Not that that necessarily means anything, because I think they really uh, missed out on an opportunity to nominate him for Quint. I think that's a really wonderful mm-hmm. performance. But... Um, and he's not in it very much. Uh, a lot of these other characters, uh, like the really powerful characters like Cardinal Woolsey, like Henry VIII, um, they show up for a scene or two, and then and then they kind of fade away um, because what uh, Thomas More winds up dealing more with like all the king's men than the king himself, like all of yeah. his uh, minions and representatives and stuff like that. Yeah. You almost get the sense it's because... Henry doesn't want to have to confront him in person, yeah, <laughs> and feel guilty. Which is yeah. that's part of the whole uh, the whole reason that all of this is happening is because uh, Henry feels guilty because of the, the more has made Henry feel guilty, right? And he doesn't like it because he's a big baby. Yeah, he's a king. It's uh, it'll happen. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and at the same time, yeah, because he's only in really one extended scene. Yeah, uh, and then he shows up again later, a very bit. briefly. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's and it's like within the first fifteen to twenty minutes, uh, the king shows up basically to say, "I need your support in this." Moore says no, and the king is like, "It's it's longer than that." But yeah. the king <laughs> sulks off and just says, "Well, we got to go." Like. It's clear, like, I didn't get my way, I'm leaving, because now i got to start putting things in motion. Yeah. Um, I really got to start getting my minions to put pressure on, on more. Uh, and so, what I like about Shaw's performance is that he, I mean, you said he's a big baby. He kind of is a big baby. Oh, he, yeah. is, he is, at the very least, childish. Mm-hmm. He is all instinct. Yeah. There are moments when he yells, and you don't know when it's coming, not unlike when like when a baby starts crying, there's really no guarantee that you know when that will be coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he just starts yelling at the drop of a hat, and then he'll stop. Then he'll go back to normal conversation, um, and he just puts he just puts you on edge. Mm-hmm. And if he's smiling, you find yourself inherently wanting to smile with him because, like, okay, he's in a good mood. All right, I'll show <laughs> that I'm in a good mood too. And you suddenly realize how easy it is to become sycophantic mm-hmm. uh, to a guy who is so moody. But has so much power. Yeah. Um, but, and this is, and again, this is a testament to the, to the film and, and how they approach that character, is he does like Thomas. He does consider him a friend. Yeah. And it's not merely that he, for, for public reasons, it's not merely that he wants Thomas to be on board. I think personally, it's like, I, I, this is something I want to do, and I just wish my friend could get on board. Yeah. And there's a scene later when uh, I think it's at Henry's wedding, um, and uh, it was at a wedding or a celebration of some kind. I don't totally recall, but there's a lot of pressure for Thomas to merely, if he just attends the wedding, um, then everything will be fine. Uh, 
but either way, there's a big social gathering, and uh, Henry sees somebody there that he thinks is Thomas, and he t- and he and you see like he he looks very hopeful, he he looks very uh, encouraged, and then he uh, he turns this person around, and says Thomas, and it's not him, and you just see a look of like extreme disappointment, and it's not that it's not the disappointment of I didn't get my way. It is the disappointment of my friend. It's not my friend is my friend can, is not going to be behind me on this. Yeah. Um, and I feel a certain degree of sympathy for him in that moment. Yeah. Um, because though I, though I myself am not in favor of him and I know what he is putting Thomas through, uh, in that moment, you know, I try to think of all the times in my life when, you know, I've wanted to do something. It might not be something inherently wrong, but, uh, you know, and a good friend has said, like, I don't think that's a good idea. And you feel a certain degree of, uh, if you're me and you tend to have very melodramatic emotions, like you tend to, uh, jump to like a, a small sense of betrayal of like, no, you're supposed to be my friend and you're supposed to be on my side. Why can't you get on board with this? Um, and I, and I see a lot of that in the, in, uh, Robert Shaw's performance and, yeah. uh, and I, I, I like it quite a bit. Yeah. It's very nuanced in that too, that it's, uh, it's a character who's normally so big and who normally, when he doesn't get his way, would throw a fit and throw a tantrum. Mm-hmm. But something different has to happen here because he still cares about Thomas enough that he doesn't just, like he does ultimately, send him to his death, but he doesn't just jump to that. He doesn't, you know, just go wild with anger at him. He's honestly upset. And so that character, who really is a kind of a big child, has to figure out what it means to want something not be able to get it and have it be more than something where you just throw a fit until you get it. And, you know, you mentioned, um, the nuance of, of, yeah, he doesn't, it's not just like, Oh, you said, you said no off with his head. You know, it's, it's not that. And in the same way, uh, Thomas, uh, speaks very overtly of like, if I can find a way to support this, yeah, I will. He absolutely wants to. Because, yeah, he wants to, for the sake of his friend, for the sake of his own life. Yeah. Uh, and, and all his of family. that. His family. It's, yeah, he really wants, he wants to be accommodating. And, uh, and you don't, and that's the thing, is like, you don't, uh, when you think of somebody of, like, integrity, you think of a certain, you, you sort of think of, like, they take their stand, and then they don't waver from it, and everyone else, you know, be damned, to mm-hmm. a certain extent. Um and with him, it's more just like, well, this is kind of gnawing at my conscience, and I think I'm going to have to go with it. I will look for every opportunity to not, and if I, but if I can't find one, then I'm going to have to stick with this, regretfully. Yeah. But, uh, but he, but at the same time, like once he realizes that there is no, that he's left with no recourse, like mm-hmm. then he does stand on it. It's not like he's sulking the whole time or anything. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, and that's uh, and uh, a couple other uh, performances and characters worth noting. Wendy Hiller was nominated for supporting actress for playing uh, Thomas's wife Alice, uh, and this is yeah. We talked about this a little bit with the Take Shelter episode. Um, there's a pretty standard character of the supportive or not supportive wife, mm-hmm. um, and with uh, with her, it's it's such an interesting thing because. You can tell that she admires Thomas for the stand that that he is taking, uh, because this is the man that she loves and fell in love with. Like she, 
He's a man of integrity. I that this is what I love about him, and yet this is the very thing that is going to ruin our lives. Yeah, and so she kind of feels the same way he does, which is like just fi- find a way to do this, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but also trying to be supportive of the stand that he is taking. Um, and in that sense, uh, it's not unlike the character. I, I mentioned this in uh, Take Shelter, I believe, of uh, uh, Jeffrey Wigand's wife in. Uh, the insider, somebody who admires her husband's uh, uh, integrity, but also recognizes this is going to make a big change in our life. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is that uh, in the insider, she eventually leaves him, whereas in uh, Man for All Seasons, she she sticks by him. So, uh, and then the other one is uh, Leo McKern who reprises his role as uh, Cromwell, one of the king's uh, lackeys. Mm. Uh, he reprises his role fr- as uh, his role in the stage play. So he's, he and uh, Paul Schofield are carry, carry overs, carries over, carry overs. You know what I mean? Yeah. From, from the play. And were they uh, the only two or were there others? What was that? Were they the only two? I think those are the only two. Mm. And so, uh, and Leo McKern is a lot of fun because, uh, now you may know him from, uh, the Beatles movie Help, which I've not seen. Have you seen it? I have seen it. I mean, you, you bought the t-shirt. I do have the t-shirt. I don't remember too much about it, honestly. I think there's part where the Beatles have a house where they sleep in the floor. That's the main <laughs> thing I remember. Okay. Um. I feel like you got it. Yeah. That's the it's, essence it's, of it, really. It's pretty silly, but it's... It's, uh, I don't know. I can't say too much about it, I guess, because it's been a while since I've seen it. Okay. But it's got the Beatles in it, so if you like them. Absolutely. And if you like Leo McKern. Which I do. He's in it as Cromwell. <laughs> yeah, it takes an odd turn. Yeah, there's a little time travel thing there that doesn't really make sense. <laughs> but, uh. That might be true, actually. I don't remember. There's some weird, uh, there's a mad scientist. Of course there is. At one point. I think something like crazy like that happens. I think they're trying to get a hold of a jewel of some kind. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't seen a hard day's night. I haven't seen help. I haven't seen any any of those. And I think I would, uh, I think I would enjoy them. But I think I would have to be in a certain headspace for that. Kind of, yeah. Um, Yellow submarines the same way. Oh, I'm sure. You kind of, it's kind of made for you to be high while you're watching it. Oh, good. Maybe I'll. Uh, I still have some of my uh, kidney stone pain pills left there over. You go. Maybe I'll. Uh, maybe I'll pop one of those. They'll, they just put me to sleep. So. Um, but yeah, Leo McKern is he's he's maybe like the most direct antagonist uh, because he's like I said one of the lackeys and uh, and just hungry for power and he recognizes that if he is sort of the the king's like chief rep, uh, representative in trying to convince more um, and then when that fails in the condemnation of more that uh, you know he might uh, he might go up in the world. Yeah, and so, but and he, he, but he's also there's a jovial quality to to his performance. Yeah, he he loves crushing things that are smaller than him. <laughs> like he he just has that attitude of like, oh, I get to to just destroy you, and it just yeah. I don't know if it fuels him with some kind of power, and that's what what uh, makes it exciting for him. But he gets he gets a joy out of bringing Thomas Moore down. Yes, very much so. The it's I think it it kind of is one of those things that like. I think some of it comes from an inferiority complex in the character. I think he he looks at Thomas More in this kind of the same way that you and I were talking about. It's just like ah, I think he's so much better than me. Well, watch this. Yeah, he may be better than me, but it's not going to stop him from uh, getting his head chopped off. Yeah, uh, at my behest. So, um, 
so that and and I hate to to harp so much on uh, or focus so much on on the performances and the characters, but that is what it is about uh, first and foremost. Uh, I will talk a little bit about you know. I'll say this like the good thing about like those old costume dramas is that it's all there. There is no CG. This is not Gladiator, uh, where it feels like a a very modern film. Uh, in, w- in which actors are wearing costumes and there's a CG coliseum and stuff. You know, the castles, the the sets, the they're all there. It really does feel like this is taking place in the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of... There's not a lot of stylistic flourish to the film. No, there's not. Although there's some things that I wonder about the costume design, actually, which I don't actually know the history about it well enough to know. Something strikes me as it being kind of 60s, like some of the design and some of the color. Uh, yes, color, um, probably. Which is a is a common problem in movies going all the way back. Like, that always happens. So... At the same time, though, yeah, it's... Uh, it doesn't distract from the film or anything like that. Right. And the characters that have the most color are the ones that probably would like Henry himself yeah. Yeah. who uh, is a bit of a peacock yeah. um, and then as far as the cinematography I remember thinking like like this one best cinematography I don't remember there being anything particularly interesting and then I remember during Thomas More's trial uh, the, the director makes an interesting choice about what he's going to do with the camera there are very few close-ups during that when Thomas More is, is pleading his case in fact not only are there not a lot of close-ups, there are a lot of wide shots where you are far away from him. And sometimes mm-hmm. the camera's behind people and you're watching over their shoulders. And in that moment, you are literally like a spectator. You yeah. are watching history in the making. Yeah. Um, and that's such an interesting, counterintuitive uh, way to direct the climax of the film. Yeah. At times, it feels almost like a little, a little frustrating. Like, oh, I just want to get closer. It's like, well, that's probably how people at the time would have felt. You know, I want to. I just want to get closer and see everything that's going on. Yeah. Uh, also, that kind of framing gives the idea, this gives the sense at least that he's surrounded and helpless and yeah, and small. It, yeah. It, he. It feels very like he's in a claustrophobic situation. He's surrounded by unfriendly faces. Um, he's kind of. It's almost. He's corralled or penned in by yeah. by these enemies and that when I think of that scene those are the images that I have in my head where he's trapped and surrounded yeah and and I and that's such an interesting choice to make yeah. uh, it's one that I that I think I wonder if people at the, at the time I don't mean to say that like 66 was like some it was like 1916 or something uh, where people are, were unsophisticated but when it came to dramas like this it was pretty straightforward most of the time. And yeah. so something like that, I wonder if people found that uh, a little frustrating. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, okay. But I want to move on into just maybe what I like so much about the film. Um, okay. So you and I are part of a... Well, we, we, we are part of two Bible studies. Okay. And one of them is uh, for our, like... It's like a men's Bible study type thing. And we recently read through the John Eldridge book, um, Wild, Wild at, at Heart. Heart. Yes. Based on the David Lynch film of the same name. Absolutely, yes. The novelization of Wild at Heart uh, with, a, with uh, a Christian theme that's in the film if you're looking for it's it. It's very strange. But uh, 
and I'd read the book before, and it is very popular amongst uh, Christian men uh, of our generation, and I can see why. That's not true, by the way, for anyone who who doesn't know the book or the or the film. Oh, indeed, yeah. We, sorry, that's not. We're being sarcastic. Yeah, the, the David Lynch <laughs> thing is not true. <laughs> Somebody um, out there is like, I gotta see this. <laughs> they. Yeah, like if you haven't done either one, then either you're going to read the book and be very disappointed by the film <laughs> or vice versa. But uh, but yeah, and so um, so this book, Wild at Heart, very popular amongst uh, men uh, of our age group. Uh, and it's because it, and I, to a certain extent, I, I understand what John Eldridge is trying to do and I agree with what he's trying to do because he's trying to sort of, uh, trying to sort of uh, embolden uh, modern Christian men because... There's been, a, there was for a while like a real uh, emphasis on like don't make waves, you know, don't do anything too bold. Boldness being a big a big part of the of the book, you know, don't don't worry about that. It's I think it probably comes out of like a desire to distance yourself from some of the more overzealous people mm-hmm. in the church, and so you t- you try so hard not to offend people that you wind up not taking any stand at all. Yeah. Uh, and so he wants to kind of fight against that and say like, well, you can be you can be strong and courageous and bold in your faith, but the problem that you and I have with his book is uh, and really just a lot of the, there's there's good stuff in the book I think uh, it, it might it might be worth a read uh, provided you can kind of filter through some of the stuff that I'm about to talk about uh, the images that he evokes he's not opposed to evoking uh, pop culture images like as I mentioned Gladiator uh, mm-hmm. and the one that he really likes is Braveheart yeah. uh, his wife bought him like a giant broadsword uh, there's a name for it I don't recall Um as like this is the essence of of masculinity uh, and integrity and bravery, like standing up mm-hmm. against uh, all odds and stuff like that. And while Bra- while Braveheart does have that, um, oddly enough, that's that's not even my favorite movie of that. My favorite sword and sand, uh, not sword and sandal, but my favorite swashbuckling epic of that year. To embody that theme, uh, I'm a big fan of the movie Rob Roy, which is uh, yeah. which is an interest, which is a lot more, a lot closer to uh, Man for All Seasons, albeit much more violent. <laughs> but it, it's about a man who is literally just standing on principle. He stands to gain or lose nothing. Um, I mean, he, st- he stands to lose something, but he stands on principle and principle alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where, even as you're watching, you're like, "Come on, man." You don't need to die for this, uh, but uh, but yeah, and so but Braveheart is the is the image that is evoked, and I remember you and I uh, as because the the our uh, men's Bible study recently went through uh, Wild at Heart, and at the beginning of that, you and I were talking about the frustration with some of his images because. When you're like me, I am not a very uh, physical person. I do not enjoy sports, playing them or watching them. Uh, I feel like I am no physical threat to anybody except maybe children, um, <laughs> which I I exert that regularly. <laughs> wow. Um, I slap children all the time. Well, they usually deserve it. They kind of, yeah. They're selfish people. And so... Small uh, selfish people. Exactly. Now we're talking. Makes me feel like a big man. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, the... Uh, but, so I'm not any of what William Wallace in Braveheart is. And so when somebody like, like John Eldridge 
says this is the essence of masculinity, my first instinct, and partially because I tend to be self-deprecating and, and that kind of thing, is it's just like, okay, so do I just go screw myself or what? Like, what's, what, what's the deal for me? Mm. Uh, but I remember you and I, when we first started reading the book and kind of expressing, expressing some of our frustrations with it, both of us talked about Braveheart as opposed to a Man for All Seasons, which is something you and I, a movie that you and I both prefer because yeah. Thomas More does not cut off anybody's head. In fact, <laughs> quite the opposite. Uh, yeah, they're, they're both, because they're, they're similar in theme. They're both two mm-hmm. uh, men who have to stand up against uh, some kind of wrong. Yeah. And, um, and a tyrannical wrong, a very powerful wrong. A tyrannical wrong. wrong. And it, it, does, it does make sense to a point, obviously, that... Uh, that Braveheart would be more about taking action specifically, like fighting action, because the sort of the wrong that he's fighting against, or at least the way it's embodied is, uh, well, the wrong that he's fighting against is embodied in physical action that is done against right. his people, whether it be ones who are killed or whether it be his, his wife who is, uh, who's killed. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he sort of fights against that tyranny, by killing, so mm-hmm. um, while there may be some parody or no, no paradoxical irony or something in that, well, my point is that he's fighting against this kind of action yeah. with with action, and in Thomas More's case, it is more that he is opposing something because of an intellectual problem, mm. and he's opposing it intellectually. Although he <laughs> ultimately ends with a with a physical end, yeah. But the point really is that one is not better than the other. Right. Um, it's not that uh, William Wallace is a man of action who gets things done, and Sir Thomas More is a whiny little intellectual who just doesn't get his way and then right. gets killed. Maybe if he was a bit more willing to fight Cromwell yeah. and fight Henry himself, maybe yeah. he'd uh if he could have raised more respect he he was liked by the people why couldn't he have raised an army and stormed the exactly. stormed london exactly um and yet and and of course braveheart because it's a more recent film and because it's more accessible um you know braveheart is by far the more popular film that people are much more likely to have seen but i think that from a christian standpoint i think every christian living in the modern day should see a man for all seasons. Yeah. Especially because this this can apply much more for us yeah. than the uh, the Braveheart thing can. Yeah. We're not Wh- going to get hurt yeah. physically. While Braveheart is a good, might be a good, uh, uh, I guess, analogy on, on the idea of standing up for something and being strong in something and being bold, mm-hmm. that, like, the practical side of that does not apply for anyone in this yeah. country today. Who knows 10, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years from now. But right now, uh, the kind of stand that Sir Thomas More has to take is very similar to um, a lot of things that some of us are dealing with, Christians may be dealing with mm-hmm. today. And when, you come, when it comes right down to it, you know, when the, when the Romans came for Jesus, I believe it was Peter, right? Mm-hmm. Who cut off one of their ears. Like, he, he fought against them and cut off one of their ears, and then Jesus reattached it and then just let himself go willingly. Yeah. Um, that, this does, you know, but that's the thing is like, in fact, I've, I find a lot of 
parallels between this movie and the the life of Christ. I mean, quite literally him saying, like, if I can find a way to take the vow, I would. Like, that's yeah. not unlike, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this. Yeah. But if I have to, I will. Yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, one of them is is peaceful in what is, he still takes a stand, but he's peaceful in it. And the, you know, Jesus does, is not William Wallace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but as you say, like, I think, I think Christians living today, there is a lot of, and I don't want to get like overtly political, but, and so I won't get any, I won't get specific, but you can probably think of any number of issues in which Christians take a stand on it and they are, called a number of names yeah. they are publicly shamed and humiliated and they are i mean they are in some cases like hated yeah. and uh i've experienced some of that myself not in a while maybe uh maybe i'll shake maybe i'll we'll review the uh, abortion documentary lake of fire and shake things up a little bit but uh but like it's it's re- it can be really quite terrible when when you feel like the bulk of society is it doesn't merely disagree with you but is against you like a disagreement yeah. is one thing but this is you hold this you are awful yeah you are a terrible person you you know you got you have to uh, a phrase i heard recently was get on the side of history yeah and that sort of thing and that's um, that's something that more specifically is having to deal with in in the film everyone uh, everyone who's against him in the film is saying like we're doing what's best for our country like for mm. our people like our our king needs a son right and to them that's as important that that happen as many political issues might be today for other people mm-hmm. um, it, in in retrospect we might look back and see like well how important is it really that Henry VIII have a son has a son right 30 years from now 50 years from now 100 years from now we might be saying the same thing about some of the issues that are so important to people today right um, so what what we have and what Moore has and stands on is uh, a moral code from the Bible, mm-hmm. and that's not something that changes with political opinion or public opinion. Right. And I will uh, – I, I wrote down some quotes uh, from the movie itself uh, that Thomas Moore says. He said – and I'll, I'll just these – are, these are said various times throughout the film um, – but I will read them in rapid succession. I think that when statesmen forsake their own private conscience for the sake of their public duties, they lead their country by a short route to chaos. I like that one a lot. Uh, and it's one that, given that it is election season, um, probably, a, probably a good idea that, uh, to keep that in mind. And see, they had, back in his day, they had selfish leaders, but fortunately we don't have any of those today. Absolutely. All of our statesmen have the people's interests in mind. No question about it. Not even the people's interests. They have what's right Right. in mind, first of all. Certainly people of this party, not the other party. Right. So, um, (laughs) uh, okay, so that's that's one. And then... um, when a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his hands like water. And if he opens his fingers, then he needn't hope to find himself again. Um, I like that one a lot as well, which is just like, you know, when you start making like little compromises and I don't mean to say that compromise in general is a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's entirely possible that like, you know, we could be, that you can stand on a, a principle, um, that is biblical, but it also 
is one of those principles that like is v- like v- relatively vague like for example like whatever is pure and holy and all that like think on these things well those while that is specific it is also vague there are people that interpret that as don't see rated r movies yeah you know what i mean and so so some some stuff is open for interpretation some stuff is spoken very very clearly yeah and if you wind up being uncompromising on every single aspect of it then you wind up uh there's a a a really wonderful sermon that i will post to I, i will link to in the the post for this episode by uh, Tim Chaddick of Reality LA about when Christians disagree with each other about kind of these these smaller issues. And it's like th- there is a certain degree of compromise that needs to be made. But when it comes to the larger issues, the things that the Bible is very overt about, if you start making compromises on those, then because I, I, as I've as I've come to dis- discover as I get older, uh, the Bible is something of a rich tapestry, and chances are if you compromise on one thing, you're going to need to compromise on something else that supports that. And then when you do that, it'll be something else. Like, it's never just one thing. Like, you pull the thread, and a lot more stuff comes unraveled. Yeah. Um, and before you know it, yes, it's like holding, you know, having, holding water in your hands, and if you let, if you, if you open your fingers... He doesn't say if you drop the water. He says if you open your fingers, yeah. which is a small gesture, but it's enough. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the last line of the film, and uh, I don't know if this is something. If this is something Thomas More actually said, it seems like it would be. Yeah, it does. Is uh, I die His Majesty's good servant, but God's first. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is like he is both. It is possible to be both. It is possible to be somebody who respects the government, respects his fellow man, loves both, yeah. wants to be a part of this society, wants to be, uh, you know, wants to be in a loving relationship with other people. Yeah. Even people with who, whose actions he finds completely immoral. Right. But there is a higher thing first. It needs to be before societal pressures it needs to be before our jobs our kids our wives our husbands like it needs to be first um it reminds me of a line from the simpsons that i always thought was very interesting and it's the one where homer uh kind of goes against god and comes up with his own religion and marge says don't ask me to choose between my man and my god because you can't win which is a pretty like that's not a that's not a joke line. Like, that's a very serious line. And it's one that, like, I mean, that is a line of of depth and heaviness uh, in a show that is usually not. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so that is not an idea to be taken lightly. And so, you know, Thomas More is friends with the king, is a servant of the king. And so his loyalty is, if no, if to nothing else, to the king, but God comes first. Yeah. And if the king goes against that, then that doesn't mean he's advocating that we overthrow the king. Right. He's just saying, I can't get behind this. Yeah. Um, and he's not even coming out publicly and saying, like, the king is wrong. We all should know the king is wrong. Or even I think the king is wrong. Right. Um, he just, he won't condone those actions and he doesn't agree with them. But that's... Yeah. That's the extent of his <laughs> lashing out against the king. Right. Yeah, he stands silent. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> um, 
But, uh, okay, so I have a number of uh, Bible verses, and I want to start wrapping up. I did not want this episode to be very long, and uh, for us, it's, it hasn't been so far. <laughs> um, so I want to go through a number of, of uh, Bible verses, and uh, Josh, you can read some of these, too, because there's several. Can I? Yes, you can. Yes. Jerk. Okay. Not a jerk. Uh, so the first two deal with the idea of, of feeling, feeling the desire to be in with the crowd and, and, and kind of give in to what other people think you should do and that sort of thing. So the first one is Romans 12, verse 2. Josh, take us away. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what, the God, or what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. All right, and then the next one is Proverbs 1, verse 10, which I will read. My son, if sinful men entice you, do not give in to them. That one is pretty straightforward. Um, and I will, I think I'll uh, jump, I'll jump to uh, this Galatians verse. That's what I was about to say the same thing, yeah. Okay, uh, I'll let you read that. So this is Galatians sure. 1, verse 10. Uh, Galatians 1, verse 10 is, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of, or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so that goes to, you know, I die his majesty's good servant, but God's first. You know, there's nothing wrong with pleasing, wanting to please people. There's nothing wrong with wanting people to like you and wanting to do things for other people and be accommodating. Uh, But if that if that goes against what God wants you to do, you know, you can't you cannot be both. Yeah. Um. Now, when this happens, you are going to you're going to be under some kind of persecution. It probably will not be getting your head cut off or being put in jail, uh, but it is entirely possible, especially these days, you might lose friends mm-hmm. um, or a job or a job. That that actually is possible. Yes, yeah. um, and at the very end, strangers on the internet could call you a number of names. For example, um, uh, theoretically, Hey, you know, it, it could happen. Uh, and when that happens, uh, I have uh, some verses here that are meant to sort of strengthen you a little bit. Um, we'll go with, uh, Matthew 16 verses 24 through 26. We'll go with Josh, Josh, go. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Okay. Uh, I will read James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. All right. And then uh, we'll go with with this last one, uh, which I will read. John 15, verses 18 through 22. Uh, and this is Jesus speaking. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. So obviously, like, and I've said this in in previous episodes, though it's been a while since I've talked about it. Uh, You know, it's, it can be very difficult to be hated. Uh, And in fact, it was 
some of the online hatred that uh, caused me to get so angry that uh, that I started to internalize. Like, I went to a counselor and he said that like a lot of my depression came from me just not knowing how to deal with other people's dislike of me. Yeah. Um, and so, so it can. I, I know that it can be very overwhelming, and it can seem like it like it can break you and i think it's harder today now than it was maybe 15 years ago or something like that because kind of because of the way that people interact now Mm -hmm. through mostly social media and uh, a lot have been said a lot has been said about maybe not social media specifically but the internet Uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of been a lot has been said about how people on the internet are they're not held to any kind of standard right. how when you're not face to face with a person it's a lot easier to say horrible things about them and um you know 50 years ago you could you could think or even say something horrible about somebody but there was a good chance it wasn't going to get back around to them right um and people specifically didn't because they didn't want it to get back around to them but now they're you, you can say something terrible directly to somebody that you've never met and yeah. with with no consequences whatsoever and so that that tends to happen and when people have spiritual moral and also political differences those uh, those kind of attacks are it's not long in discussion on the internet before you get into those kind of attacks and that's yeah it it can be very discouraging, but and, and I don't say this as like a "Hey, buck up, man" or any or, or anything like that. But like, the Bible does say that this will happen. I mean, we saw what happened to Jesus for saying the things that he said. If we also say the things that he said, admittedly not about ourselves, but nonetheless, like if we also say these things, then yes, we will be pursued as well. Uh, we will be insulted and, and all of that. Um, it just stands to reason. Yeah. Um, not to say this only happens to Christians either. Like oh, obviously right. that's not the case. It, it cuts both ways on the internet and we're, we're just, well, and in life too, not only yes. on the internet. <laughs> um, and that's probably something that we can also use to give us perspective that people that you disagree with may feel just as hated because of the way that people lash out against them in, maybe in in a public forum like the internet absolutely yes and yeah uh, hopefully and i think this is kind of the one of the big uh thrusts of the bible is that when you come to realize when you come to realize like the way you feel uh you know when somebody has been mean to you or something like that but also when you come to realize that you are no better than anybody else or that other people have probably been victimized in the same way you have um, in, in some way, uh, then you will try to extend the respect to them that maybe you have not received yeah. um, because of that perspective and the idea of, you know, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like that is a, you know, that's something that Jesus said while in tremendous pain. Yeah. And I mean, if somebody, that's a thing like, he was getting giant nails like driven through his wrists and his feet and he was about to die um and when i say about to he was about to be set on the path to death it would be a while mm-hmm. um so when you know that and then that person is saying forgive them they don't know what they're doing then yeah the person who's calling me a name 
I can probably ex- forum. I can yeah I can probably extend some grace to them yeah um, and but what's more is when you do this people will notice there's a reason that we hear about Thomas More as a noble figure yeah there's a reason that this play and this film were made right you know he is a positive figure in history he is not a negative one I mean when you think about it what does his uh, we'll go back to Braveheart. Uh, Will- William Wallace, who I just just now almost called Braveheart, uh, <laughs> William Wallace was fighting against oppression. He was fighting for himself, but he was also fighting for other people. He was fighting for his people. Mm-hmm. So that is a very noble thing. And so, like, he's fighting for the greater good of all of us. So Thomas More was fighting for his own conscience. Yeah. It didn't really affect anybody. Yeah. And in yet, fact, it would it would help some other people if he were to 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 give in. Right. It would help Henry VIII, who was his friend. Mm-hmm. It would help his family. I mean, you, you think yeah. this is this is the this is the fifteen hundreds. It's not as if his his wife and his daughters are just going to be you know fine to continue on their own. Um, in those days, specifically, a man was responsible for taking care of and protecting his and providing for his family. And it's one of those things, and it goes back to what I was saying. He was honest, but he was known to be honest. And that makes the big difference. If he's somebody who went to his death for this principle, that is not a small thing. If people see that that you are willing to undergo persecution for this thing that you believe, even if that person doesn't agree with it, I think they actually do admire it to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. You know, that idea of walking the walk, um, you know, and this goes to, I have a quote here by Billy Graham. Courage is contagious. When a brave man, when a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. Uh, so this can inspire this might, you know, you taking a stand under, under, uh, you know, persecution and insults and all that, all the other things we have to deal with now. If you do that, you might be inspiring other people to do the same. You might never actually know it. I don't. I don't think Thomas More knew what the what the overall impact would be. No. But it does happen. People are watching. Whereas, if they see that you drop your, uh, if they that you drop your principles at the first sign of trouble, then not only do you look bad, but suddenly the principles are such that they are not worth fighting for. Yeah. And so, what's the point? Yeah. Um. You know, you you can't get the water back in your hands, mm-hmm. um, and that's the thing. And that that I think is is what we need to be very careful about. I have one last quote here by Leonard Ravenhill, whose last name I love. Uh, but before I say it, I do want to say that like these days, I'm sorry, I, I might offend somebody. These days, Christians they buckle a lot. I'm sure there have been times when I do it, when times when you've done it. Like, I think we all do it. But, like, there are times when they buckle very publicly, mm-hmm. thinking that they're doing people a favor. Yeah. Thinking that or, everything's going to go along just fine. Or thinking that it's not that important. Right. Um, because it's not, maybe because it's not central to the message of Christianity. And, uh, like, this is an example where it, it was about divorce. That's what uh, that's what Thomas More was making a stand on. Yeah, not whether or not Jesus was 
the savior, not whether or not God exists, yeah. but whether or not Henry VIII's divorce was moral. Yeah. And I'm interested to know, because the film has sort of fallen out of public consciousness, I'm kind of interested to know what people think about that stand specifically that he's taking, because divorce is a much more casual thing now. Yeah, especially in the church. Yeah. People, I, I mean, he was absolutely on the wrong side of history, if you think about it. Uh, yeah. Most church, divorce is not a, uh, an issue the church will, they, they all talk about, oh, well, we don't want it to happen, but... Um, it's certainly not something that's unheard of in the church. No, it's not at all. Very prevalent among Christians, and yeah. there's not a lot of churches out there saying this is a thing that we need to to try and to try not to do. Yeah, and so and that's the thing is like you never know like how many you never know like how many marriages might actually have continued through a hard time and come out better on the other side if divorce was not considered such a casual thing. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just like, this is pretty rough. You know what? I think I'm out of here. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, I'm not talking about like adultery or abuse or anything like that. Obviously, a divorce is perfectly reasonable uh, and okay uh, in, in circumstances like that. But, uh, but yeah, and so we didn't mean to turn this into divorce specifically, but that is what the film is about. And it is a good example of something that has been, that the church has loosened up on and the effect is probably a negative one. Mm-hmm. There are just as many divorces in the church as in as not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like what they say, like 50 percent of, of all marriages end in divorce. And that's the same ratio in the church. Yeah. You know, and the church is supposed to be different, um, supposed to set an example. And it is not. Um, but that's the thing is like. Like when you comp like when you take a stand, people note it when you compromise, people note that, too. And. It doesn't really even matter why it, it, it doesn't really even matter why you're compromising. If you're, con- you know, if it's because of pressure, if it's because of the threat of physical pain, uh, people will see like, all right, when the chips are down, he dropped this like a hot potato. Uh, and so there's this quote from Leonard Ravenhill. I've not forgotten it. If Jesus preached the same message ministers preach today, he never would have been crucified. Uh, I find that a very bold statement and one that perhaps is true. Because ultimately, I think there's a lot of people who who water down the gospel and they say, yes, this is true uh, to a certain extent. I mean, I don't want to be viewed as exclusivistic. So, you know, it's fine. And think about like if Jesus himself had said this. Yeah. It's just like, I am the son of God uh, to kind of. To a certain extent. To a certain extent. Um, And by the way, what did I say earlier? (laughs) I know. To a certain extent means no. (laughs) And so, uh, so yeah, like. Christianity is built on somebody taking a stand in the face of destruction. That is what is what it's built on and that is what we should build ourselves on as well. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh and if you want a good example of this, A Man for All Seasons. It's a very uh, wonderful film that I believe is on Netflix Watch Instant. I did not do the research. I, th- I think it's, but it's readily available. A lot of video stores carry it. Not that there's video stores anymore, but you can get it, uh, you know, through Netflix uh, on DVD at least. So I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Um, I think we'll wrap up now. Uh, it's getting a little late. So you can go to morethanonelesson.com and you can read... Nah, there's not a lot of blogs up these days, but you can, you know, find sermon recommendations. Uh, you can find the teaser video of uh, uh, the unemployed mind uh, 
just a reminder that there will be a that, that the first episode will be going up on the 25th which is a week from today if you're listening to this when it comes out which would which be, weird. be that never happens but yeah. uh but yeah and uh let's see what else can you find there? Uh, you can also buy for the title for a mere ten dollars, only ten dollars, with a dollar seventy-five shipping. Uh, there is—it's kind of hidden right now because I don't want to uh, discourage you from buying Josh's movie. But if you don't want to deal with that whole thing, uh, scroll on down and look to the right. You will see a donate button. If you felt like donating donating to the show, uh, you're more than welcome to. Uh, the show will continue regardless. But any. Uh, any support you want to, any financial support you want to give would be uh, welcome. So, uh, and then you can email me, Tyler at more than one You can email Josh, Josh at more than one You can follow me on Twitter at more lessons, and you can follow Josh on Twitter at the Josh Long. At the Josh Long. So the next episode I think will be about Margaret. I'm not 100 percent sure. We're starting to get uh, by the you know two weeks from now, we'll start to get into into October and. Uh, October, uh, we're going to be discussing some uh, some horror movies in the spirit of uh, of Halloween. So Woo. we'll see what we can do. Um, but yeah, in the meantime, Josh, thanks for being here. Thank you, and thank you all for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye, bye.